I'm Michelle Harvin, and welcome to Business 2020, Foresight Through Hindsight, a podcast of the Aspen Institute's Business and Society Program. In this podcast series, we take a fresh look at major events in business and society over the past two decades, from the WTO protests to 9-11, from Enron to Occupy Wall Street. These events may have left the front page, but they offer important lessons for business leaders in the decades ahead. And to illustrate just what that means, let's see if you recognize this quote. Americans are living in a time of contradictions, a time of role reversals, a time in which old expectations are violated so frequently that new expectations cannot form. Many of these contradictions center around connections to the world. Now, it probably sounds like something from the last few years, if not days, right? But it's actually from more than 20 years ago, from a 1995 book called World Class, Thriving Locally in the Global Economy, written by Harvard Business School professor Rosabeth Moss Cantor. Moss Cantor's warnings about a backlash to globalization came in the mid-1990s. At the end of that decade, 20 years ago, on November 30th, 1999, policymakers and business leaders would get an even louder warning. On November 30th, 1999, over 40,000 protesters showed up in Seattle for a gathering of the World Trade Organization. The crowds included labor leaders, environmentalists, religious leaders, and many other groups. Unrest broke out in the streets, leading to what has been called the Battle of Seattle. We'll look at those events in a moment, which remain controversial, but whatever their meaning was, they should have been a bright red flag to the business community that there was a strong countercurrent to this new order of the global economy. And this raises the question, if the warnings about a backlash to globalization were so loud 20 years ago, why were so few of them heeded? And why did we end up where we are today in 2019 with an even bigger backlash that's led to a global trade war? To answer that, let's start with Rosabeth Moss Cantor and the issues that prompted her to write World Class in the first place. She points out that globalism was triumphant in the early 1990s. Everyone seemed to be on board. It was not only that America was seen as a hyperpower, that globalization was seen as triumphing all over the world and that countries were getting together, the EU, was forming. It was seen that we would have fewer nations in the world, we would have more global governance, and this would become one happy planet. But, says Rosabeth. But, of course, I saw that that wasn't true. It was certainly business that wanted to see globalization triumphing. 
because it made it easier to move goods and services. It created efficiencies and big markets, big access to markets. Amidst all of the back padding that us global people are here to stay, I could see that there were people left out and left behind. I had been imbued with ideas that the left behind will sometimes eventually make their voices heard and that there was no straight line in history. There were always wiggles. So Rosabeth wrote her book as a way of figuring out how to help those Americans and their communities adjust to the changes ahead. So my real impulse was, how do I find out what cities, what communities need to do to thrive under those circumstances? How could you get back some of the economic action? And I did surveys as well as field work in five major U.S. cities. Based on her research in those five cities, Rosabeth concluded that communities could become magnets for companies if they cultivated a skilled workforce. Investing more in education was one way for cities to do that. Now, that didn't solve all of the problems, but it meant that there was some central thrust to the economy that could benefit the local community and therefore create prosperity. Rosabeth's research grew into something bigger. It wasn't just a book. I had local partners in all of the five cities. I went to those cities. I spoke to their chambers of commerce, university communities, etc. And she also went to Davos and tried to caution the leading proponents of globalization. So it was probably the January 1996 meetings. I was on an opening panel, and I said at that panel that don't get too excited about globalization has won because soon you might be hearing populism and socialism are back. And that was in newspaper headlines all over the world. While Rosa Beth was working on her project, the newly founded World Trade Organization was ready to get down to business. And the work was ambitious. The WTO was trying to create a legal framework to integrate the entire global economy. That's why there were big questions to be worked out in Seattle in 1999. It's also why a lot of people showed up to make their voices heard in the streets. One of those people was a young activist named Jai Ching Chen, who today is a professor of global studies at UC Santa Barbara. Jai Ching says many policymakers were blind to how globalization could hurt people on the ground. Those making the policies had this kind of glib, sanguine idea that, you know, it lifts all boats. It's good for everyone. Everybody's going to learn to adjust because in the end, everybody wins. In Seattle, Jai Ching found a large group of people who shared his ideas. I was not from Seattle. But people were trying to do the same thing that I and the people I worked with were trying to do, which is to say, connect the experiences that people have in their own communities and their community struggles in their local political fights and struggles around workers' rights, around the environment, around things that they cared about. And it was a diverse crowd. There were conservative politicians as well, you know, people like Pat Buchanan, and like there were people that had really populist concerns. And so just being in crowds of people that were that large and were having this shared opposition, even though the bases for that opposition were diverse, that there was a commonality about 
concerned that things needed to change. Jai Ching is recounting events from the view of a protester. But the thing is, many delegates to the WTO were saying similar things. They felt the WTO wasn't really concerned about finding rules that would work for everyone. So in one way, the protesters in Seattle were pushing on an open door. The trouble was, in another way, they were closing it. That was because a small but violent anarchist group known as the Black Bloc was disrupting traffic and smashing storefronts in downtown Seattle. Seattle police responded with tear gas and pepper spray. By the end of the day, the mayor would declare a curfew and the governor would call up the National Guard. Several WTO events got canceled. The violence overshadowed media coverage of the event and set reform efforts back a long time. It just wasn't really about constructively protesting anymore. It was more about anger. That's Susan Aronson, a professor of international affairs at George Washington University and the director of its digital trade and data governance hub. She was also among the demonstrators who came to Seattle in 1999, hoping to highlight the need for WTO reform. But the violence made that impossible. I have no problems with anger. You know, that's part of our right to express it. I have problems with anger that leads to violence and destruction of property because I don't see how that wins you over anybody to your objective. And in fact, it was pretty scary. And that was the end of constructive movement that could have reformed the WTO because what happened was delegates were scared. So the WTO delegation had to leave Seattle without resolving the key questions it had come there to address. Now, reformers hope they'd get another shot in two years' time, in Doha, the capital of Qatar, where they were going to meet next. But that next meeting took place in November 2001, just two months after the attacks of 9-11. Everything had been upended. Rosabeth Moss Cantor says that 9-11 marked the end of major government investment in local American communities. Local communities were kind of dropped from the radar screen as homeland security and a lot of spending for the military for somewhat feudal wars became the norm. So there were a lot of things that we were on the verge of doing in 2000, including better transportation and infrastructure spending, but all of that money went away. Susan Aronson says when the WTO met again in Qatar, the United States had stopped caring about developing a unified global framework. U.S. leaders believed that opening up trade to poor countries would help address a root cause of terrorism, but they left countries to work out their own deals with their own standards of social responsibility. It led Canada and the EU and Australia to do their own free trade agreements with their own standards. And the problem is, if you want to send a message, that message needs to be consistent. You know, especially if you believe that environmentalism and human rights must be governed multilaterally because they're, they are the same things, right? And unfortunately, the U.S. approach and the Canadian approach and the EU approach, they're all different. And while they aim to the same objective, the strategy is different, this is not let 100,000 flowers bloom because essentially you're sending mixed messages then to countries. So those who lament a recent collapse of global governance may be getting ahead of themselves. The WTO system 
had never really gotten off the ground in the first place. The best opportunities for putting it on a healthy foundation had been disrupted by outside events. The minor but frightening violence of the Battle of Seattle and then the cataclysm of 9-11. Then came the rise of China and growing economic dislocation for many parts of the United States. And it created an opening for an entrepreneurial politician to disrupt the global trade system. We have a $500 billion deficit. We're like the piggy bank that's being robbed. Today, we can see that the business world missed some important warnings on globalization that were already loud in the 1990s. But doesn't mean that the relationship between business and society has changed for the worse. One answer comes from Richard Edelman, who was president and CEO of the public relations company Edelman. Back in 1999, Richard was struck with the passion of the protesters in Seattle, and he saw that non-governmental organizations, or NGOs, were playing an important role there, bringing people together for a cause larger than themselves. This inspired him to create something called the Trust Barometer, an annual credibility survey produced by Edelman's research division. We wanted to have a sense of how uh, credible the non-governmental organization movement was. And it turned out um, that, in fact, NGOs were the most uh, trusted institution in the world, uh, well ahead of business or government or media. And that's actually continued over the 20 years history of the uh, trust barometer. Edelman says in the 20 years since the Battle of Seattle, with wars and economic crises along the way, trust in the government and media has collapsed. Now, that's something we may have known, but what's less known is... The emergence of uh, peer trust. I don't necessarily want experts. I want people who I see and talk to who are friends and family like this, who, uh, you know, in a way, trust has become something more local. And this peer trust has translated into trust of employers. So while you might think that a backlash to globalization would have destroyed public trust in business, Edelman says his surveys show something different. In the last year, the fundamental change in Edelman um, barometer is the high trust in my employer. So my company is actually the most credible source of information. I only trust that which is close to me. So I can look someone in the eyes and see whether he or she's telling the truth. And it's also part of a vote of no confidence in government and other institutions that historically have led. This means business leaders have some rare opportunities. It also means they face some high expectations. So as countries look to reset their relationships to global trade, what role should business leaders be playing this time around? Rosabeth Moss Cantor suggests the push for government to invest in local communities is in many ways what she was suggesting 20 years ago. The backlash is partly the result of a failure to invest nationally. And corporations are not the ones who need to do that investment, but they need to nudge government, and then they need to participate in partnerships and alliances that have the best solutions to some of these problems. I think if business invests in something in their direct interest, such as workforce development, we would see a lot of progress. Richard Edelman encourages business leaders to take a more active role on major global issues that government hasn't been able to address. I would hope that 
you know, if in fact the last decade was spent sort of building back from the financial crisis, then the next 10 years is spent fixing the world <laughs> because there's something really significant going on in, in environment, in race relations, in just privacy. And business is going to have to lead on this by example, by hiring, by putting stores or factories into places where people don't have jobs. And if 30 or 40 percent of people are going to be turfed out by automation, then they have to retrain them so that they're not you know, sitting around with a guaranteed minimum income. And both Rosabeth and Richard agree on the importance of the simple role of providing employment. People need to work. They need to go to the office. They need to connect. They need to feel good about something. So in this case, if U.S. business leaders miss some important lessons in the days of the Battle of Seattle, they might have an even more critical opportunity to act now. Together, Richard's research and Rosabeth's analysis suggest that as globalization falters, companies can rebuild social trust by starting at the local level. And that investing in workforce development is a vital step companies can take to rethink their relationship with local communities. And as Richard's reference to automation suggests, technology may play a key role in shaping that relationship. What sort of role exactly? Well, that's just the story we'll explore in our next episode. Here's a preview. Serendipitously, this entire industry suddenly comes out of nowhere in the mid to late 90s. And so all these forces come together to create this sort of mania because the money has to have somewhere to go. There's this exciting new avenue for it to go in. I just went to my manager and quit my job. I saw the future. We hope you'll join us for our next episode, where we seek foresight through hindsight by looking at an event that made the business of technology what it is today. Be sure to subscribe so you won't miss an episode. And leave a review on iTunes. New episodes go live every Tuesday. Business 2020 is hosted and produced by me, Michelle Harvin, and written by senior producer Keith Schumann, with input from T.A. Frank, Miguel Pedro, Felicia Davis, and the Business and Society team. Recorded by Ben Eiler and Amina Akhtar, and edited by Jesse Krinsky. Special thanks to our guests this episode, Rosabeth Moss Cantor, Jai Ching Chen, Susan Aronson, and Richard Edelman. The archival audio you heard in this episode is from the Associated Press from May 2nd, 2016. You can find detailed information on the music and sound credits through the site page for this episode on the BSP website. Thanks for listening. Thank you.